Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Uh, as you very nicely said, I, I think, uh, you know, particularly in America, we think that influence is bad. It's not a four letter word, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this myth of the nonconformist. We're all different. We're all separate. Uh, we're all completely original and different from everybody else. Um, and that's just not true uh, at, at the end of the day. And not only is it not true, but influence just isn't as bad uh, as, as we think. Uh, you know, imagine for a moment that you couldn't pick a car mechanic or what restaurant to try or what movie to see uh, by talking to anybody. You had to figure out yourself every restaurant you'd ever try, every book you'd ever read, uh, every movie you'd ever see. You had to do all the work to figure it out yourself. You had to read all the reviews and the information and sift through it, um, you know, page through the book, figure out if you wanted to buy it. Life would be really difficult. Uh, and so, you know, so many times others help us make better decisions and also faster decisions. We read online reviews to help us pick something. Uh, we talk to our friends to help us figure out what to do. That's influence, and that's definitely not a bad thing. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about bowl and branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jonah, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I uh, have known about your story for quite some time. I've, I've actually read your other book, Contagious, and your new book uh, literally showed up on my desk and, and you know, uh, at, literally showed up on my doorstep. And then I got an email from your publisher saying, do you want to talk to Jonah? I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, we've had uh, one of your colleagues, Adam Grant, here as well. Um, so it is really, really cool to have you here. And since we are talking uh, about the subject of social influence, which is, is the subject of your newest book, um, I thought it would be really interesting to open with this question, uh, which, you know, we've opened a few shows with and it's been really eye-opening. What social group were you a part of in high school? 
and how did that impact the choices that you ended up making with your life and your career? Uh, that's a fun question. So um, I went to a math science uh, and computer science magnet high school. Uh, and so I uh, also went to one of those for middle school, one of those things you have to take a test. And uh, if you do well enough on the test, you get in. Um, uh, and so I was surrounded by some people that were really, really good uh, at one thing. Uh, so they were either really, really good at math. We had some people that, you know, like took the international math exam or some of the top scoring people in the world. Uh, we had some people that were really good at computer science. Uh, some people who, you know, today were uh, on the early wave of a lot of companies that have now been really successful. Um, uh, and so a bunch of people that were really good uh, at something. Um, I was not that good at any of those things. Uh, <laughs> I was okay enough at each of them uh, to get into the school, but was definitely nowhere near, uh, nowhere near the best. Um, but was neat is that program. So it was uh, the Montgomery Blair uh, Magnet Program in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, and that program was situated in a larger school. Uh, so I think something like 100 kids each year were part of the magnet program, but then uh, another five or 600 were part of the regular program. Um, and so what was really neat about it is you got to take these advanced classes, um, but you were also surrounded by lots of regular people. Um, and so you got to play sports and do all the other things uh, that people normally get to do in high school. So I was kind of uh, a geek, uh, but not the, not the chief geek by, by any way, shape, or form. I was not smart enough to be that. Um, but I think my own identity came out of trying to blend uh, those multiple groups. So, um, you know, I love playing sports. Uh, I was on the soccer team, then I wrestled, I was on the cross country team, um, and was never the best at anything, but was okay uh, at a number of things. And so I think my proudest moment in high school um, was, I think my senior year, um, I won the all around student award. Uh, and why I really liked that is, again, I wasn't great at anything, um, but I felt like uh, I was able to be okay at a few things, touch a few different groups, you know, be involved with student government, um, and connect a lot of these things in an, in an interesting way. And I think that's always, um, you know, taking a step back, that's always a great way to be creative. Um, uh, you know, people talk about bringing together disparate things or disparate influences, um, and I think that's really a great way to, to come up with new ideas. Um, you know, it's always good to be really deep in something and to know a lot about one area, but um, particularly if you can bring together multiple areas or different perspectives, that's often a, a good way to be creative and come up with new ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. You, you mentioned you multiple times that you weren't particularly good at any one thing, but you're okay at a lot of things and you're surrounded by these really sort of high achiever, ambitious people. And, and I'm asking this for very personal reasons because I spend my days interviewing people who are sort of at the upper echelon. And um, when you're around people like this on a regular basis, um, how do you manage to get what you can from being around those people, like get the best uh, by, by being surrounded by people who are at higher levels than you by not getting into this trap of comparing yourself to them and wondering why you're not at the level that they're at. Um, you know, I mean, what was your experience with that being surrounded by so many smart people? Yeah. I mean, social comparisons are a powerful tool. Uh, they can motivate us as, as you noted, but they can also demotivate us. Uh, you know, if we spend, if we're golfers and we spend our time, I don't know, comparing ourselves to the top golfer, what, what Tiger Woods used to be, we're going to be pretty disappointed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, if we, if we compare ourselves all the time to the entrepreneur that's knocking it out of the park, uh, you know, every given year, um, you know, not most of the companies, most of us start are not going to be the, the next Uber or the next Facebook. Um, and so I think it's important to learn, uh, from greatness, uh, and learn from people that are really successful. Uh, 
but also not expect uh, that you need to be like them on on every level. Because sometimes, you know, you look at uh, those folks' lives and they've really given up a huge amount to, to be where they are. Um, uh, and that's something that some of us are willing to do. And it's, it's not something that I think uh, others of us are willing to do. But, you know, one thing I often do is I try to figure out well, what makes someone good at something. So, uh, when I started public speaking, for example, uh, a few years ago when Contagious came out, it always been an academic speaker, always spoke academic conferences and, uh, you know, presenting research. But I started being a keynote speaker at, you know, larger events. So, uh, you know, the association of this or the council of that or, you know, an event that had 8,000 people. Uh, and had never really done that before. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, how should I do that? And one thing I did was I tried to look around and figure out how other people did it. You know, I watched the people who came on stage before me who are much better at it than I was and tried to figure out, well, when does the audience laugh? Uh, you know, when do they seem to be having a good time? When do you notice them engaged versus when do you notice them tuning out? Uh, and I think, uh, you know, sometimes particularly in America, we think copying is bad. We think imitating is bad. You know, we think we have to come up with everything from our, by ourselves, but really great folks that are good at anything they learn from others. Uh, and so I think it's a really uh, smart way to just look around and say, great, you know, if I have this opportunity to be close to greatness, what's making this person or this organization so successful? successful. How can I try to reverse engineer it and use that to be more successful myself? Hmm. All right. So walk me through the journey of how you go from, you know, being part of this magnet high school where you're kind of this jack of all trades student to how you end up doing the work that you're doing as a professor, because you're kind of this interesting blend of like author, social scientist slash educator. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how that whole high school experience impacted the choices you've made and then, you know, kind of what the journey was from there to where you are today. Ah, so I'll, I'll give you the the, the meter, medium length version. If you yeah. if you want longer, you can ask. Um, but so I went to this high school. We had to do like a senior research project. Uh, I did one on urban hydrology, which I bet most of your listeners have no idea what it is. Neither <laughs> did I at the time. Uh, it basically means measuring streams. So literally taking like a, a big pole, measuring stream depth across a cross section of a stream and figuring out how uh, the way that the land is used in the watershed affects the stream geometry. Okay, fantastic. Really sort of nerdy science stuff. Went to college thinking I would do that type of thing. So I thought I would be an environmental engineer. Um, uh, and um, thought I was going to major in, in that type of topic, uh, sort of science, technology, and society. Then in one of my first classes, my first semester, we were reading uh, about how the way we build buildings affects the way we raise our children. Uh, and so the idea, very simply, is when we all live in small houses, we can see our kids play in the front yard, so we let them play, they hang out with the neighbors, they become good friends. When we start building these huge buildings, we can no longer see our kids playing in the front yard, so we don't let them out as much. So they're less likely to become friends with the neighbors, and it affects how they grow up. Um, and I thought this idea was really interesting, uh, and I, I asked the professor, hey, you know, where could I learn more about this? Uh, and he said, oh, you should check out social psychology. There's a class on social psychology. And so um, I had already started doing a little bit of uh, a research kind of in the area, being a research assistant uh, with someone who was uh, a doctoral student in psychology at the time, started taking social psychology and found it really interesting. Um, and had always still assumed I would go into business, had always assumed I'd get an MBA, um, but I started kind of studying the questions uh, that I've ended up studying today. So was interested in why things catch on, why products succeed, how social influence works, how it drives fads and fashions to catch on and die out. 
Um, at the time, uh, you know, a couple of years into my, my college time, uh, a book came out called The Tipping Point that many of us know and love. Uh, loved that book, thought it was really interesting, thought it wasn't super research-based, but really interesting stories. So I kind of dug in more into the research. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is nice enough to suggest some other books for me to read um, uh, and started doing research with a guy at Stanford named Chip Heath, uh, who is now part of the Heath brothers who have written Made to Stick and Switch and Decisive and a, a number of other books and started doing research on, on how ideas catch on, how uh, things stick and spread. Um, and the rest is kind of history. So uh, from there, did a PhD. Uh, from a PhD, started be, uh, to be a faculty member at Wharton um, and sort of had done a bunch of this research on social influence, uh, word of mouth, how things catch on. Uh, was teaching a class on it at the Wharton School called Contagious, uh, How Products, Ideas, and Behaviors Catch On. Um, and would always have people that would couldn't take the class, um, but would ask, "Oh, you know, I couldn't make it this time, or sold out already. You know, is there any way I could get the material from the class?" And I would often say, "Oh, great! You know, here's some papers that we read." And they would always say, "Those are really boring academic papers. Don't <laughs> don't don't you have anything more interesting?" And I would sort of say, uh, "No, uh, you know, I didn't. Uh, there were some you know social media books out there, but those were pretty applied, and they weren't always science based. Yeah. Um, and there were some psychology books out there, but they weren't always applied enough." And so that's one way I, I started writing Contagious, um, and that's how I started on this whole journey. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, you know, it, 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 like you have this moment in your life <clears throat> that it seems to all go back to, which is that moment when you have this spark that, hey, I'm interested in this thing while I'm in this class. Uh, from the perspective of being an educator now and being a teacher in a setting like the one that you were in, what do you notice are the common patterns in your students when moments like that occur? And why do you think we, we often miss moments like that in our lives? Yeah, I mean, I think it's making sure to have the time and the space to ask an interesting question, uh, even if you don't know the answer. And so I think the way... Um, the way schools are now, uh, particularly being in a business school myself, um, but also the way that students are now, how they're much more career focused uh, than they used to be, everybody sort of wants to make sure that everything they're learning will help them on their career path tomorrow. You know, everyone's studying violin because they think it'll get them into college. Everyone's making sure to do an extra internship and to be the captain of the this class or the that class because they they'll know it'll have a certain impact. But I think the challenge is is sometimes. Um, discovering something new is not about having the answer right away. It's about asking an interesting question that you really don't know the answer to. So I got started studying word of mouth, for example, um, uh, with a, a colleague of mine. You know, I would see in the Wall Street Journal that on page A2 or A3, there was always a list of the five most read and the five most shared uh, Wall Street Journal articles. And this was back in like you know 2004 probably or 2000 and, um, something like that 2004 before even the internet was a huge deal um, you know this was the stuff that people were sharing um, and I was wondering why why are some of these articles shared and others aren't and I had no idea you know I really wasn't sure uh, you know I would look to the literature and there were some theories out there but uh, with a great uh, collaborator Catherine Milkman uh, who's now at Wharton also you know we started digging into it and we explored it a little bit and uh, we didn't always know the answer and so I think sometimes there's a desire to um, pick things that will get you to an answer quickly um, but sometimes the really exciting stuff uh, is just about asking a question asking an interesting question and and seeing where the the data and the results take you 
Okay, so I want to spend a bit of our time uh, getting your thoughts on education and, and you know the current educational system because you know I, Adam and I had a pretty lengthy chat about this, and anytime I, I get to talk with a professor, um, I'm always curious on what their perspectives are on education and its current form, um, what they think about the future of education, like what is it going to look like, uh, and you know I mean there, there's so many sort of alternatives now to college, and so I just I'm so curious to hear kind of what you think is right, what you think is wrong, and what you think the future will look like? That's a, a big question <laughs> uh, and uh, an important question. I mean, you know, certainly uh, at Wharton and other places have seen a lot of interest in these sort of online courses mm-hmm. uh, and leveraging, whether it be MOOCs or online modules or education to help people learn. Um, and I think what I like about that is, uh, is I think it begins to think a little bit more about what is most effective for different students and different types of material. Um, you know, the the classroom is a great place to learn uh, and can be a great place to engage with one peers, but I'm not necessarily sure it's the best place to learn everything. Um, you know, it is introduction to chemistry, for example, is being in a 600-person lecture hall uh, at 9 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, the most effective way to learn intro to organic chemistry or, or whatever it is. Um, and I'm not an organic chemistry professor, by the way, so I don't have that answer. Um, but but my guess is, um, you know, sections are really useful for, for people to ask questions. But being in that lecture hall may not be the most effective way uh, for all students to learn. And so I think where um, you know, I don't think MOOCs are a, a end-all, be-all. I don't think online education is an end-all, be-all. But I do think um, the exciting part is beginning to think about what methods of diffusing information are best. Um, you know, might certain material be better uh, online because people can come back to it and they can pause it uh, and they can, um, you know, listen to it again. Um, and then they can go on and they can meet with a TA or, you know, a professor or a section leader and begin to ask questions. So I think that's um, that's quite uh, exciting. I also think, you know, in business education, uh, I spent a year uh, a few years ago at, at something called Cornell Tech, uh, which is in New York City. So your listeners may be familiar with this, but uh, Cornell started a new tech campus uh, in New York City uh, with the goal of blending business and technology education, really sort of, uh, you know, educating the tech leaders of tomorrow. Uh, and, you know, uh, Wharton's, Wharton's a great school, been around for a long time, does well in, in the business school rankings, uh, but it's a big ship and it turns very slowly uh, and change doesn't necessarily happen quickly there uh, always. Uh, Cornell Tech is built on a really nimble sort of startup platform, uh, sort of a maker platform. You know, we'll try something one year, you know, whether it works or not, we'll try something else the next year. Uh, and they're really thinking about, you know, how do we make sure tech entrepreneurs are not just deep on the technology side, but also deep on the business and the innovation side how can we pair people who are good at technology with people that are good at business? Um, and I think some of these new programs um, that uh, may not be as prominent at the moment or as sort of have as long a history, uh, but are really trying to think differently uh, about education, or at least uh, think a little bit differently about education, uh, have a powerful uh, opportunity to upend the traditional model. Mm. Okay, so um, I have one other question about this. You know, I, I heard my friend Eric Wall, who's a, a graffiti artist, say something uh, in a talk. He said, you know, standardization stigmatizes being wrong, and yet a good amount of our, our school system is rooted in standardization. And I am curious kind of what you think we're going to do to change that, or, you know, what does the future look like when we have to consider the fact that maybe standardization isn't the best model for how to teach people? How do we cater to the individual, I guess, is really the question. 
Yeah, and I think we have to be careful here, right? Yeah. Because again, there's there's this notion that difference is better, mm-hmm. uh, that that everyone is a unique, special snowflake, and everyone needs something <laughs> completely different. And you know, forget classes, forget material. Everyone learn whatever they want. Yeah. Um, there's some value there. You know, I did an individually designed major in college, so I put together a major that blended uh, social psychology, marketing, and sociology. That really gave me the basis to study what I study today. So I didn't do a traditional major. That said, I didn't invent courses. I picked up an existing set of courses. I just combined them uh, in a different way. Or similarly, you know, if you want to be uh, even a graffiti artist, for example, I imagine there's a set of skills that everyone needs to learn. Uh, and then there are a set of skills beyond that uh, that you need to, to build on. And so I think you know, rather than saying, oh, let's throw away everything, we need complete difference, I think it's really about um, – and actually you know, I talk about this a little bit in, in the new book, Invisible influence, but the value of being similar and different, um, the value of combining existing things in new ways, or the value of picking a few things that are identical to everybody else, but one thing that's different. Um, and I think, uh, you know, everyone is not completely different. Um, there are some different ways of learning. There are different types of people who learn different sorts of ways, but I think having a more flexible than just a one size fits all model, um, can incorporate some of that variance or heterogeneity, uh, and give a broader set of people uh, a chance to learn better. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's shift gears a bit. Let's, let's actually get into the book. I mean, I, I would love to do a deep dive into what these invisible influences are, how they shape our lives. And of course, you know, what we can do with that information. Uh, so let's start with what they are. Sure. Uh, and so, uh, Really, what what the book is all about in a nutshell is is we think we make our own choices, uh, and very simply, we're wrong. Uh, whether we whether we think about uh, you know the breakfast cereal we bought, uh, the radio station we listened to, or big stuff like what career to pursue or what person to marry, we think we make those decisions. Our preferences, uh, our likes and dislikes, uh, all of that drives what we do. Uh, and very simply, we're wrong. Other people make those decisions for us. Uh, sometimes we do the same thing as someone else. We see our neighbor bought a new car. We're more likely uh, to buy something similar. We see a lot of people like a restaurant, we're more likely to try it. At the same time, sometimes we do something different. Uh, you know, we're at a restaurant uh, for dinner with a group of our peers, someone else orders something, well, we skip ordering that. We actually choose a different item than we were going to order because we don't want to be the same as them. Um, and other times, others motivate us. Uh, you know, did a bunch of research showing that others are a really powerful motivating force to help us do better, whether it's uh, exercise more or work harder at work. Other times, others can demotivate us. They can provide a standard that's too tough to reach. And so we get demotivated and give up. And so really, the book is all about these different types or flavors of influence. When others lead us to be the same, when they lead us to be different, when they motivate us, when they demotivate us. Uh, and how we can use all this exciting science uh, to be happier and healthier, both at home and at work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay. So uh, it's interesting because I think the moment you tell somebody you don't, you don't make your own decisions, especially like a a person who's incredibly ambitious and driven, that probably makes them cringe just the slightest bit. Um, It it, it, like the idea made me cringe until, you know, I remember reading it said, be open-minded. I was like, all right, I'm going to go into this with an open mind. Because I I think when we think about something like influence, right, and the idea that we're susceptible to something that another person tells us or the environment that we're in, uh, we naturally think, you know, somebody is trying to manipulate us into doing something that we don't want to do. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious how this becomes something more positive. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you can use this to be a, a much happier person in your life. So I guess I'd like to look at it from a few different contexts. One is, you know, in the context of sort of entrepreneurial efforts. Uh, another is in social context, you know, social situations, relationships with people. And then maybe, you know, for parents listening, kind of how it plays out with uh, with their kids. Sure. And just, I mean, to, to, to take the, the higher level question to start, um, uh, as you very nicely said, I, I think, uh, you know, particularly in America, we think that influence is bad. 
It's not a four letter word, but it's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this myth of the nonconformist. We're all different. We're all separate. Uh, we're all completely original and different from everybody else. Um, and that's just not true uh, at, at the end of the day. And not only is it not true, but influence just isn't as bad uh, as, as we think. Uh, you know, imagine for a moment that you couldn't pick a car mechanic or what restaurant to try or what movie to see uh, by talking to anybody. You had to figure out yourself every restaurant you'd ever try, every book you'd ever read, uh, every movie you'd ever see. You had to do all the work to figure it out yourself. You had to read all the reviews and the information and sift through it, um, you know, page through the book, figure out if you wanted to buy it. Life would be really difficult. Uh, and so, you know, so many times others help us make better decisions and also faster decisions. We read online reviews to help us pick something. Uh, we talk to our friends to help us figure out what to do. That's influence, and that's definitely not a bad thing. I don't think any of us would say that's bad uh, to you know listen to our, our friends to figure out what to wear to a formal event or you know the the right question to ask in an interview, talking to someone who's been successful, you know uh, looking to other entrepreneurs who have succeeded uh, to figure out how we should lead our own uh, businesses or organizations. That's not a bad thing. That's a, a smart thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think to me it's it's really about first noticing influence. Um, you know we don't want to admit uh, it happens to us. Uh, you know if you if you ask people, people sometimes do see influence. They see other people driving the same cars. They see kids listening to the same music. In fact, if you look around, there's only one place that people never see influence, uh, and that is themselves. Uh, we are entirely unwilling uh, to admit uh, that we're actually influenced. And, and part of it's because it, it happens non-consciously. It happens below our awareness. Uh, often, uh, we're not aware that others affect our behavior, but they, but they do. And so first, being aware of that, uh, and second, knowing how to use it. Uh, the more we're uh, aware of influence and understand it, we can take advantage of its upsides and we can avoid its downsides. All right. Let's talk about taking advantage of his upsides because the moment you started saying that, my mind went to, okay, how can I use the concepts um, that you have outlined uh, not only to make you know the stories we tell here on Unmistakable Creative more effective and influential, but just you know as as a writer, speaker, and somebody who puts my thoughts out into the world, how do I how do I leverage that and how do I tap into the power of influence? Yeah. So uh, just a, a simple example. Uh, so uh, you know, imagine you're negotiating. Uh, so you're, um, whether it's a house or a car or a contract with a client, really anything at all. Um, some scientists looked at what made people successful negotiators. They looked at uh, hundreds of negotiations, uh, trying to figure out, you know, what, what did they have in common? Uh, and they found that one trick uh, led negotiators to be five times uh, as successful, uh, five times more likely to reach an outcome when it looked like it would be difficult uh, for that to happen. Uh, that trick, very simply, was subtly, and subtle is important, but subtly mimicking uh, the behavior uh, of others. So uh, if the two of us are sitting in a negotiation and, and you crossed your legs, I would do the same. Uh, if you tilted your head to the side slightly, I would do the same. I wouldn't imitate everything that you do, um, but like a chameleon, I'd subtly change my behavior uh, to fit my environment, whether it's the mannerisms, whether it's language, uh, whatever it may be. Negotiators who did that were five times as likely uh, to to reach an, an outcome. And it's, it's not just negotiators. Uh, other researchers looked at a sales context that find that waiters or waitresses uh, who mimic uh, patrons' tips. So someone's order, they say, you know, I'd like the Caesar salad uh, with chicken dressing on the side and a Diet Coke. And you say, okay, you'd like a Caesar salad with chicken dressing on the side with Coke. Um, take those same words compared to, you know, saying, okay, you'd like a Diet Coke and a Caesar salad dressing outside, mixing up the words, same words, same order, 70% higher tips. Uh, and so the idea very simply is don't just listen, uh, to people, though listening is important, uh, emulate them, 
subtly mimicking the mannerisms, the behavior, the language of others uh, deepens trust. It increases liking, liking uh, and it facilitates social interactions. If you look at daters, for example, people on a first date, uh, those whose language naturally matches more, well, they're more likely to go on a, on a second date. Um, and so the idea very simply is you know, being similar to someone uh, makes them feel a kinship. If you and I, for example, found out that we had uh, the same birthday or we went to the same high school, uh, we'd feel like we had a little bit more in common. Uh, and so we'd be more likely to trust each other, like each other, and, and have better interactions. And so that's just one way, again, taking advantage of the tools of influence uh, that we can make ourselves more successful. Yeah. Um, what surprised you um, that you didn't know uh, in the research process for all of this? Like, what, what were the things that seemed incredible, like that are incredibly contrary and that probably people have misperceptions about? Oh, um, you know, so so we did some research on the how others motivate us or, or demotivate us. When are when are others sort of a powerful motivating force, or, or might they they hurt our ability to succeed? And um, I uh, used to be a soccer coach. I used to coach uh, AYSO uh, U12 boys, uh, and what would notice as a coach um, that uh, halftime came around. Uh, we were a pretty good team. Uh, halftime came around, uh, but at the end of the game, we were more likely to win uh, if we were actually losing uh, at halftime. When we were winning, somehow we figured out a way to lose, but if we were losing, somehow we figured out a way to win. Uh, and so I, I wondered, well, was that just my, my team or my bad coaching skills, or is there, is there something deeper there? Uh, so with a, a colleague of mine, you know, we looked at tens of thousands uh, of NBA as well as college uh, basketball games. Uh, we looked at the score at halftime uh, and the score of the end of the game. Uh, and what we found uh, was that in general, being ahead was a good thing. Uh, so teams that are ahead, uh, and the more they are ahead uh, at halftime, are more likely to win. Uh, not surprisingly, you know, being up by a point or two, for example, two points, let's say, uh, increases your likelihood of winning by six to eight percent. So uh, if you're a betting person, you're betting on a basketball game, pick the team that's ahead uh, rather than the team that's behind, except in one place. Uh, and that was that teams that were behind but just by a little bit, teams that were down by one were actually more likely to win than teams that were ahead by one. So not only are they worse teams on average, because in average, you know, teams that are losing tend to be worse teams, uh, but they're behind. They have to score more points to win. And yet they did it. Uh, they not only uh, did it a little bit, they did it significantly more. They came back uh, and were, were more likely to win the game. And the reason, very simply, as we've been talking a little bit about, uh, is motivation. Uh, when you're behind by just a little bit, uh, that the proverbial, you know, you're so close you can almost taste it, um, others are a powerful motivating force to, to get us to work harder. Uh, in basketball, they led teams to, to come back and, and win. Um, in other contexts, they've led people to run faster and bike harder and work harder and save more energy. Uh, and so one way to motivate ourselves isn't just to do it by ourselves. I think we have this notion that, oh, you know, we, we've got to do it all by ourselves. We, I want to lose weight. I've got to do it by myself. I want to exercise more. I've got to do it by myself. Uh, peers are a much more powerful way to make sure we achieve our own goals. Uh, again, they're not a bad thing. They can actually be helpful. Uh, I had a friend who was uh, trying to lose weight. He was <laughs> trying to lose 15 pounds for about three years, never seemed to do it. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, he figured out a way to do it. He challenged a friend of his to see who could lose 15 pounds the fastest. Uh, and sure enough, those pounds came right off. Uh, and so that was a case again where you know someone else, social influence, let him do something he couldn't do otherwise. 
All right. So there's one area that, that really struck me from the book that I, that I remembered. Uh, it was about brands who specifically went out of their way to pay people not to be associated with their brands. Uh, so I, I'm really curious, kind of, you know, what are the implications of all of that? I mean, let, let for, you know, to give people some context, let's explain it to them. But I mean, what are the implications of all of that for us, our work and, and kind of in our lives? Sure. So uh, there's this notion that we buy the things we buy for what they do. Uh, so, you know, we buy a car for the way it drives, we buy a clothes for, you know, uh, because we, we like uh, the way they fit or their price. Um, but a lot of what we buy and what we do is is driven by what it signals. Um, and so I'll give you the, the sort of example you were mentioning and, and a couple others as well, because I think it's a really interesting case. Um, so uh, a few years ago, uh, your listeners may, may remember uh, Snooki from the Jersey Shore. She was the the short one that sort of was colored like a parking cone and uh, said very, uh, very nasty things uh, every so often. But uh, she walked down to the mailbox, uh, opened her mailbox, uh, and found a free Gucci handbag. Uh, and she was really excited, of course, uh, because not only was there a Gucci handbag, but she actually didn't pay uh, for this Gucci handbag. Some had sent her uh, a free Gucci handbag. Now, that by itself uh, is, is not very surprising. Uh, you know, we, we all know that brands do product placement, uh, maybe hoping that if someone like Snooki is using their bag, uh, other people will be more likely to use it as well because they'll see her on television or uh, in the magazines. But it wasn't actually that Gucci uh, sent Snooki a bag. It was actually one of Gucci's competitors. Uh, so one of Gucci's competitors had paid money to buy a Gucci bag and send it to Snooki for free. Why would a competitor uh, send uh, Snooki a, a Gucci bag? And it actually wasn't her uh, only. Uh, one of her peers on the Jersey Shore, uh, Mike, uh, the situation Sorrentino, uh, who was known for his abs, and he had like the six pack abs or whatever. Uh, he also uh, got a letter. Uh, this was from Abercrombie and Fitch uh, offering to pay him money, uh, but it wasn't Abercrombie and Fitch offering to pay him to wear their clothes. Uh, he was actually being paid not to wear their clothes. So why would Abercrombie and Fitch offer to pay him money not to wear their clothes? turns out in both of these examples, uh, the key insight was that we buy things not only for what they do, but also for what they mean. So uh, in the case of the Gucci handbag, you know, Snooki's, uh, the person who sent it to her was hoping, look, if people like Snooki are carrying Gucci bags, then the target market for, for Gucci handbags, the folks that uh, have, have the money to buy it might not want to buy it anymore. Or if people like Mike the Situation Sorrentino are wearing Abercrombie and Fitch, people might not want to do it anymore. Because, again, we don't just buy things for what they do, but also what they mean. What do they signal or communicate about us? And it's, it's not just funny things like uh, you know, handbags or clothes. Same thing happens with politics. Uh, so I was recently working with an organization that wanted to get clean energy to catch on among conservatives. Uh, and so they went around to ask conservatives, you know, do you support clean energy? If, if so, why? If not, why not? Uh, and they found out that clean energy should be something conservatives like. Uh, you know, when, when you look at the data, clean energy uh, helps reduce our reliance on foreign oil, something that uh, conservatives should like because it increases national security. Uh, it also makes government smaller, uh, something conservatives should like. But conservatives don't support it. They don't support wind power. They don't support solar power. Uh, and if you ask them why, uh, one politician said it really nicely. He said, well, you know, it seems like Al Gore supports clean energy. Uh, and if Al Gore supports clean energy, it's probably not for me. Uh, and the idea very simply is, look, you know, if someone like that is doing it, probably someone like me is, is not going to do it. And so it's not just about what the issue is, the upsides or downsides. It's what it communicates to others, what it signals or, or what it means. Well, I, I'm actually glad you brought up politics because uh, I, I, you know, that that was going to be sort of where I wanted to go with this next. I mean, being in an election year, I'm really kind of curious uh, what the implications of all your research are for what is going on uh, currently with the election. 
And like, what, what is your perspective on it based on all of this research? Yeah. I mean, I think what's, what's interesting uh, about this election uh, is it's a great example uh, of things like party or things like meaning over policy. Uh, You know, people aren't voting necessarily based on who has the best ideas. Uh, They're voting because they're angry. uh, They're fired up. uh, And they think that certain candidates uh, stand for certain things, whether or not their policies actually stand for those things. You know, you talk to Trump supporters, they really have no idea what he's going to do. uh, (laughs) But they know that he's angry and they're angry. Um, and that he stands for being anti-establishment, uh, and they don't like the establishment. Uh, you know, you talk to people who support Bernie Sanders, different, totally different political party, but basically the same thing. Um, you know, they don't necessarily agree with all his policies, but he feels like a Washington outsider, at least compared to Clinton, uh, and so that's why a lot of young people uh, support him. And and so I think it, you know we're really seeing um, a, a case where influence, uh, as well as uh, marketing and understanding human behavior, is driving is driving voters. Uh, you know, everybody said, oh, there's no way Trump is going to be successful. There's no way he could do this without, uh, you know, being on message and clear and exactly this and that and everything the political establishment has been for, you know, 50, if not 100 years. And yet he's ignored all those things and been been quite successful. So I think if we learn one thing from this election season, it's that uh, it's not that people are weird <laughs> or that, uh, you know, politics is a domain unlike any other or this year is an anomaly. It's about we got to understand how people behave. Why do they do the things that they do? How does emotion, for example, drive sharing? We did a bunch of work a few years ago showing that, uh, you know, the more angry people are, the more likely they are to share. This is exactly uh, what, what Trump is, has harnessed uh, well this year, you know, taking high arousal emotions like anger, anxiety, and, and using them to drive transmission. Um, uh, it's not just that positive emotions are shared. It's not just that policies are shared. It's not just, you know, the person with the most money wins. It's the person who knows how to craft contagious messages, how to influence others, uh, and how to use that to build a platform. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, when you're talking about Trump, you know, I, I remember my business partner and I were talking, he said, you know, like, as he's gotten closer and closer to where, where we're at now, his craziness has toned down a bit. I haven't been keeping up with it, but like you haven't heard him mention something like the Trump wall. But then my business partner said, he's like, think about it. That was brilliant from a PR perspective because it generated so much publicity because of how ridiculous it was. Exactly. And I think, uh, you know, we've done some research on controversy, for example. Um, So uh, how controversy drives conversation. Um, And uh, not surprisingly, you know, a little bit of controversy goes a long way. Um, uh, it's, you know, you don't want to be extremely controversial. You don't want to be something that, you know, everyone has a a really, really strong uh, view about, but, you know, building a wall is something that's a little bit controversial, gets some attention, um, and, you know, gets him bigger exposure than he would otherwise. And so in some sense, some of these ideas are marketing one-on-one, but he's harnessing them really effectively. Well, let's look at the flip side of this, uh, because I, I think, you know, like you said, we, we kind of see influence as a bad thing. Like we don't want to be persuaded to buy shit we don't need. Uh, you know, it's that whole fight club thing, <laughs> things that you own, own you. Uh, how do we uh, how do we not become susceptible to influence in the moments that we don't want to, given what you know about all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think one question we can ask ourselves is, is do we like something yeah. <laughs> or are we doing it because we think other people uh, like that thing? Um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, why are we buying, uh, buying something? And, you know, the challenge I think is, is often influence is non-conscious. We're not aware it occurs. Uh, you know, you ask people why they bought something, they'll give you an answer. Oh, I bought it cause it was on sale. I bought it cause I liked, uh, the color that it was, but they don't realize, uh, that they actually bought it because they saw lots of other people, 
uh, wearing something similar. We did some research on baby names, for example. So we, we looked at uh, over 100 years of baby names, over 200 million births, basically the popularity of every name uh, in the United States uh, from 1900 until now. Um, and we found some predictable patterns. You can actually predict what names are going to be popular in the future by looking at what names are popular now. Um, but it's not just that popular names become more popular or unpopular names become less popular. It's about the similarity between uh, names. Uh, so we found, for example, if Lisa is a popular name this year, uh, then other names that begin with that L sound, so you know Larry um, and Lucinda uh, and other names that start with that L sound are more likely to be popular in the future. Even hurricanes, uh, you know, like take Hurricane Katrina, for example. You think no one would name their child Katrina after Hurricane Katrina. But baby names, uh, there was a 10% increase in names that began with K after the hurricane. And that wasn't just people naming their kid Katrina, but they were naming their kids uh, names like Kathy uh, and Kim and other names that began with that sound because they heard that sound more. Merely hearing the name Katrina more often made it sound more familiar, made people like the sounds that were part of it. Uh, and made them like other similar things more, uh, even without aware, being aware of it. You know, if you ask someone, no one would say, "Oh, I named my child because Hurricane Katrina happened, and I heard the name and I liked K names." They'd say, "Oh no, my uncle had this name, or my aunt had this name, or you know, uh, a friend growing up had this name, so I gave this other name." Uh, and so we're often not aware it occurs. That said, doesn't mean it's it's a bad thing. Just by understanding it, we can harness its power. All right. So a few more final questions for you. Um, this is one that I've been asking just because it, it's been really interesting to see. And uh, I'm curious if uh, you were to recommend any book, music, piece of music or piece of art to our, our listeners that has profoundly impacted your life, what would it be? I only get one. <laughs> only get one? You, you can, tr- you, you, you're more than welcome to share three. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, you know, there's, there, there are many, um, uh, but, uh, one of my favorites, uh, is a book called a matter of taste. Uh, and, uh, that book is all about baby names, uh, but studied from a scientific perspective and using baby names to understand culture more generally. Uh, it's written by this guy, a famous sociologist, uh, his last name is Lieberson, Stanley Lieberson, really amazing, interesting book. Um, but causes you to look at the world uh, differently than than you might otherwise. So a uh, great book that uh, really changed the way I thought about things. Awesome. Uh, well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <laughs> uh, you know, I think you have to be willing uh, to be a little bit different, but not too different. Um, uh, you know, I think you have to stand for something, have a passion, have a purpose, uh, follow those things, do something you love, uh, you know, not be exactly the same as everybody else yet, not be completely different. Uh, there's uh, an ideal point in there. Uh, people often call it being optimally distinct or similar and different at the same time. Uh, and, you know, building similar things and using them to be a little bit different, uh, is a great way to, to be creative and to be more successful. Awesome. Um, well, this has been really, really insightful. So where can people find out more about you and your work? Yeah. So, uh, best place, uh, is just my website, uh, just Jonah Berger, J O N A H, uh, B E R G E R.com. Uh, there's a bunch of free resources there, uh, help them apply the science from the books. Uh, and they can also find me at J one burger on Twitter. Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and, and share your insights with our listeners. This has been fascinating. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. 
next time on The Unmistakable Creative. My grandmother taught me, uh, gave me some very early stage seeds of the whole concept of being in service, in making a contribution to the highest interest of others and the power of those relationships. She didn't just sweep floors and run a register and take orders for film development. She got to know these people and they got to know her and she forged relationships that lasted many, many, many years. And when it came time for her to retire in the days before her last day in her retirement, she had customers coming in and giving her gifts and giving her flowers and thanking her for her service and her contribution. And that all began with her attitude and her outlook and her view of the importance of relationships in bringing your best self to them. Michelle Reyna joins us to talk about relationships and trust. (laughs) Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.